All right, we have a lot to get through this morning. My goal is to finish the Abrahamic Covenant, so let me open us in prayer and we'll go ahead and get started. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the uh, little bit of rain that uh, at least I drove through on the way over here this morning. We pray for more. I pray that you would be with us in our worship unity today. We pray that you would uh, be with us in our, our study of the Abrahamic Covenant as it ties into our our uh, catechism questions and, and your word. May we learn more about you and your grace this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, so we're picking back up in Genesis. Uh, we're in uh, verse 6. Where were we? We're in, uh, sorry, I'm looking at my notes here. We're in uh, Genesis 15. Sorry. Uh, verse 6. <clears throat> so we were looking at how Abraham... Uh, was complaining, but then God takes him outside, right? He shows him the stars. Um, And then in verse 6 was where we stopped. And Abraham's response to God's promises, very crucial piece of text, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the first time in the Bible that faith and justification are put together. Okay, This verse is quoted four times in the New Testament. Romans 4.3, Romans 4.22, Galatians 3.6, and James 2.23. Why is this important? Because the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Okay. Now, before we go to the New Testament, we can see the emphasis that Moses is putting on faith here. Okay. Before Abraham proves himself by his righteous deeds, he is declared righteous because of his faith. Hey, but just in case, let's see if our understanding of the text is correct. Uh, flip with me to Romans chapter 4. <clears throat> Romans 4. Starting in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we see that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So, how do we know Abraham was saved by grace, through faith, because, in short, Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17, right? Abraham has faith, and 
He's declared righteous in Genesis 15, but the sign of circumcision doesn't come until Genesis 17, right? And that's the point that Paul's making here in Romans 4. Now, so much can be said of this text that we just read, but it confirms our understanding of that point, right? That Abraham was not saved by works. He saved by faith. Now, skip down to verse 18 in, uh, in Romans. We're going to read uh, 18 through 22 here. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Aha. So Genesis 15.6 is not just for Abraham. It's for us also. It's counted to us as righteousness for those who believe in God. But the one true God has manifested himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The same righteousness Abraham is given is the same righteousness that we're given. Which means, by the way, and I know I've said this before, believers are saved the same way in the Old Testament as they are in the New Testament. Right? Saved the same way we are today, by faith in Jesus. Now, Galatians 3.6 essentially says the same thing as our Romans passage, but flip over to James 2. Flip over to James 2. But wait, isn't, isn't that the text that shall not be named, right? That's where it says a person is justified by, by works and not by faith alone. That's the scary one. Don't worry, we're going to take care of it. <clears throat> James 2, let's look at verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, 
I had us read this whole section for proper context, right? Because as you all know, the last thing that you're supposed to do is take a piece of text from Scripture and just rip it out of context, right? You don't misapply the Word of God. The main point that James is trying to make here, right, is that a person cannot simply say that they believe in Jesus and then go on living however they want, right? In other words, you know a true believer by their fruit, okay? They will keep God's law. They will do good works in his name. A faithful follower of Christ cannot merely profess Jesus' name, okay? James says that in verse 26, faith without works is dead. It's a hollow, shallow, untrue faith, right? And Jesus says the same thing, right, in Matthew 7, uh, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, it's not, it's not enough to simply say that Jesus is Lord, right? James says even the demons are smart enough to know that, and they're scared, okay? True saving faith comes from a, a circumcised, repentant heart, and such a heart will be moved to good works, right? Now, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, I know that. That's great. I've heard that before, Okay. But he still says in verse 24 that a person is, is justified by works and not by faith alone. I mean, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but that kind of seems to contradict Paul. What do we do with that? I'm so glad you asked. Let's pick back up in verse 20, okay? Let's look at verse 20 again. <clears throat> Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So what did James do here? What's he doing? What's he talking about? Well, aside from hurting my feelings by calling me foolish in verse 20, okay, pay close attention to what he does. Okay. He's using the example of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. When does that happen? Chapter 22 of Genesis. Okay? Seven chapters after he's declared righteous. So works aren't justifying him here. Okay? At least not in the traditional sense of justification. Hint, hint. Okay? What about the other example he gives? What about Rahab? It's close, but no cigar. In Joshua 2, verses 8 through 11, she first believes the stories of God's saving work. Okay? Then, four verses later, same chapter, verse 15, she hides the Jewish spies and lowers them on the rope. In both scenarios, both examples that he gives, faith, is first, and therefore the declaration of righteousness. Okay? Faith precedes the work. Then what does James mean that Abraham was justified by works and not faith alone? Okay? Understanding everything we've already discussed up to this point to be true. Okay? 
And since we know Scripture is inerrant and infallible, I would argue that James has a different understanding of the word justified here. Okay? Paul uses justified to mean that a person has been declared righteous by God through faith. Okay? James uses justify to emphasize the way in which works demonstrate that someone has true saving faith. Okay? Or that they have been justified. Okay? And Calvin, by the way, was of the same disposition. He believed the same thing. Listen to his commentary on this text. We must take notice of the twofold meaning of the word justified. Paul means by it that gratuitous imputation of righteousness before the tribunal of God. And James, the manifestation of righteousness by the conduct and that before men, as we may gather from the preceding words in verse 18. Okay, so did you catch what Calvin said? He says, for Paul, justification is the imputation of God's righteousness. For James, justification is the manifestation of God's righteousness. Okay, it's, it's, it's really that simple. Okay, now, all of that to say, Abraham is justified with our traditional Pauline understanding of the term in Galatians, I'm sorry, in Genesis 15.6. Okay, justification is a, is a covenant legal term. Okay, he believes in God and it's imputed to him as righteousness. Okay, now, this next part in, in Genesis is, is fascinating. Looking at verses 7 through 21. In, in verse 7, God reminds Abram that he, he brought him out of the land of the earth of the Chaldeans, right, to the land that he would possess. And by the way, when it's all said and done, how much of Canaan would Abram possess? Just his burial plot. But in verse 8, we get another crisis of faith from Abram. Here, I'm sorry, he hears God, and in yet another panic mode, he says, how will I know that I'm going to possess it? How am I going to know? And God's response here is nothing short of astounding. In the following verses, God essentially says, I swear unto death. That's how I'll keep my promise. I swear by my own life. And I, I think we might have touched on this before, but this bears repeating. Okay? We talked about how in the ancient Near East you had the, the Caesareans and the vassals, right? The Caesarean was the ruler or the overlord, and the vassals were the, the underlings, right? The subjects or the conquered people. Now, this is not a perfect one to one correlation, but it goes something like this, right? The Caesarean would, would conquer people, and they'll say, I'll enter into a covenant with you. Right, and here's the terms. Right, I'm going to provide you uh, security and a government and, e- and, and an economy. Right, you're going to pay me taxes and tribute and men for my army. Okay, if you violate your end of the bargain, I'm going to slaughter you just like we slaughtered these animals. Okay, now what people in the ancient Near East would have assumed is that Abram was going to walk between these animals and and make his commitment to God. That's not what actually happens in the text. Let's look back down at what we have. In verses 9 through 10, Abram gets the animals, and he cuts them, and he prepares them, and he starts to wait for the Lord. 
right? In fact, he's waiting so long that buzzards start circling overhead, right? And he's, he's got to chase them off. In verse 12, Abram falls into a deep sleep, and God proceeds to tell him how his offspring will be slaves in Egypt, but he's going to deliver them. But look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and so on. The symbolism of the animals is a blood oath. A blood oath of self-malediction. Okay? But it's not Abram who walks through the animals. It's God. That is what the, the smoking fire and the flaming torches. It's symbolic of God's presence. God says, I call a curse down on myself if I don't keep my promise. I will become like these animals. That's how you can be sure, Abram. And here's why that's important. Number one, no ancient Near East, uh, ancient Near East Suzerian, no, no ruler, no overlord would have done something like this. Much, much less a, a, a god. Okay? Now, God's, ancient Near Eastern gods, they would witness covenants. Okay? But they would never enter into one with a human. Number two, nowhere do you find the Lord in an ancient Near Eastern covenant swearing by his death to vassals? Okay? You, you see it the other way around. But never would an ancient Near Eastern god or lord pledge his life to his inferiors. It just doesn't happen. Why does any of this matter? Okay? Listen carefully. Because God is assuming the role of the vassal. The overlord becomes the servant for the assurance of the servant. So when we read in Isaiah of the servant of the Lord who is to come, that's the idea that traces right back to here. Okay, And even back to Genesis 3.15. The way the Lord will secure your salvation and enter and ensure these promises is kept by becoming the servant himself. He succumbs to death on your behalf so that the blessings... And the promises of the covenant are secured. And he does that in the person of Jesus Christ. This is awesome. Excellent. Now, our last major stop in the Abrahamic covenant is Genesis uh, 17. Please turn with me there if you have your Bibles. Now, at this point... You would think Abraham would be rock solid in his faith, given his vision and the promises of God. Nothing should sway him. You'd think the same would be true of us as well. But like us, Abraham struggles. In fact, he's still kind of having a crisis of faith, you might say. So much so that back in chapter 16, Abram lets his wife convince him that he should get uh, pregnant by the Egyptian slave, or get, I'm sorry, get the Egyptian play, uh, slave Hagar pregnant. They have a baby. The name is Ishmael, right? And that brings us to Genesis 17, where we find 99-year-old Abraham not wanting to do things on God's time or in God's way, right? 
that also doesn't sound like us either, right? Because not only is Abram old, his wife is right behind him, right? Sarai is 90. So flip over to verse 17 real quick, same chapter, uh, chapter 17. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Okay, this is, this is how big of a crisis of faith Abram is having right now. Okay, he's literally laughing to himself, thinking, okay, Sarah and I are kind of a couple of old farts, right? I mean, I'm pushing 100, okay? And, and Sarah, she's 90. There's no way she can have kids at this point, okay? And so he turns to God, and he says, can you, can you just make Ishmael work? Okay, Abraham's hopes are on Ishmael at this point. He's, he's all but given up. And God says, no. You, Abram, may not be able to take a 90-year-old womb and bring life out of it, but I can. Okay, And in this chapter, we see God not only revive Abram, but demonstrate Three, three things that we need to see here. His omnipotence, okay, his power, the covenant itself, and the sign of the covenant, okay, that being circumcision. And it's these three things I want to address. Let's take a look at that first one, God's omnipotence. <clears throat> Knowing Abraham's doubtful heart, what's the first thing God says to him? Look at verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham Abram, sorry, and said to him, I am God Almighty. For those of you that study divine names with me, you know the significance of what's going on here, okay? Now, we can do a whole class on, on divine names, but here's, here's what you need to know for now. Divine names both identify and describe God so that we might know him and that we might learn to call upon him, okay, in petition, proclamation, and praise, Okay, I like what G.I. Williamson says regarding this. In the Bible, then, a name is more than a mere label. It is a true description. It reveals something to us concerning the person to whom it is given. And I would argue that statement is even greater concerning the Lord. Now, I want you to, to bookmark this verse in your mind. Okay, hold on to this proclamation of God's name. Okay, because we're going to revisit it again in the Mosaic Covenant. And it's going to be very important in a whole new way. Okay, but for now, let's look at what we got. God says, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. Okay, El Shaddai is, one of, is a very common name that Scripture uses for God. Okay, in this name, God is highlighting one of His particular attributes. His divine power. Okay, and by the way, ladies, if you're trying to have a baby at 90... This is one of the divine attributes that you're going to want to pray for, okay? But it's no accident that God starts by proclaiming his name, okay? There's power in God's name. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. God wants Abraham to know that he is in loving covenant with the one true and living God. 
okay? The God who created everything by the power of his word. His power is beyond comprehension or contestation, okay? With this name, we are setting the stage early for covenantal assurance and supreme authority. Okay, let me say that again. This name sets the stage for covenantal assurance and supreme authority. Now, the very next thing God does is present Abraham with his covenant. Okay? God says that I may make my covenant between me and you. In order to assure Abraham, the Lord is going to solidify the covenant promises. And in doing so, he calls Abraham to a true and living faith by requiring two things. Number one, he says, walk before me to maintain that ongoing relationship with God, to continue to put his trust in the Lord. When, when you read this in the Hebrew, you could see in the, in the verb walk that there's an ongoing nature to this command. Okay, It's something that Abraham is to never stop doing. Okay? The second thing he says is be blameless. Now, this term blameless, it's, this, it's the same Hebrew uh, root word used for uh, when they sacrifice animals, okay? Uh, that they were to be without blemish, okay? Uh, if you remember in Genesis 6-9, this is how God uh, described Noah, that he was blameless, okay? He was the one who walked with God. Now, this is not a call to sinless perfection, uh, we already saw at the end of Genesis 12 that Abraham is anything but sinless, right? Rather, this is a call to wholehearted faithfulness. God is telling Abraham, live in accordance with what you believe. Because at this point, Abraham has demonstrated that he's, he's really only half in, right? Um, on one hand, he says he trusts God and his promises. But then on the other hand, he's saying, hey, can we, can we make Ishmael work? Okay, I, I, I had a baby through Hagar. Why can't we use this one? Um, so this teaches us that we can't just offer up God lip service. Okay? We can't say we trust him and then turn around and live our lives in a completely different way. Okay? Now, God moves on in verses 4 through 8 by repeating the covenant promises, and this is his, this is his portion of the covenant. Okay? Um, when we get to verse 9, we'll see Abraham's uh, responsibilities. It's a Genesis here. Okay, God says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant uh, sorry, between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." So we see several promises stated here, okay? and there's different ways that you can number them, but I, I think we see six. Um, and remember, our catechism question is focused on identifying the administration of God's grace in these Old Testament covenants, right? and one of them is promises. We're about to look at six of them. 
going all the way back to verse 2 for the first one, God says that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. And this is reiterated in verses 4 and 5, um, that from Abraham will come a multitude of nations. Number two, we get the name change in verse 5. Now, the name change itself isn't a promise, but the meaning behind the two names becomes the promise. Abram means exalted or mighty father. Abraham means father of multitudes. In his very name, Abraham is now reminded of God's promise to him. And people always ask why God changes his name. Well, the answer is in Scripture. Look at the end of verse 5. Because I have made you the father of many nations. Okay, The name change itself is meant to encapsulate the promise and the purpose of the covenant. Okay, Third promise, God will make Abraham a father of kings. It's in verse 6. The uh, Midianites, the Ishmaelites, the uh, Idiomites, all have kings that come from Abraham. Okay, uh, Verse 7 uh, is where we get number 4. God will include Abraham's descendants in the covenant. And this is a promise that's repeated from chapter 15. Okay, uh, Number 5, God will give all the land of Canaan. comes from verse 8. Again, a promise that's repeated from chapter 15. And then number 6, at the end of verse 8, God promises, I will be their God. And this is something that Robertson uh, refers to in his book um, as the Emmanuel Principle. And I thought this was pretty interesting because it really highlights covenantal continuity. The idea is that these covenants aren't just random, okay? But that they are linked together and that each one builds upon the last, okay? And this Emmanuel Principle is kind of the thesis that's, that's woven throughout these covenants. And let me speak to that real quick because I thought this was pretty cool. Now, in general, we can speak of how this principle is presented in Genesis 3.15 and and how God will be with his uh, people as the one who crushes the head of the serpent, right? He's present with Noah by preserving him and his family in the ark. But specifically, this language appears for the first time in Genesis 17, okay? We see it here in uh, Genesis 17.8 and then again in Genesis 17.7. Um, God affirms his intention with Abraham after the circumcision when he says to be God to you and to your offspring after you. That's verse 7. So God is with Abraham and his people. Okay? He will be their God. Okay? This is the Emmanuel principle. Okay? And I, I know we haven't gotten there yet, but be on the lookout for this in future covenants. Okay? For example, in the, in the Mosaic covenant, you see it all throughout. Um, in Exodus 6-7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, okay? In Deuteronomy 29, 13, that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. From the moment God leads the people out of Egypt, all throughout the desert and in the promised land, Yahweh has always been God to his people, okay? And here we can clearly see the Emmanuel principle in both covenants, okay? But as if that's not enough, God makes it very clear. This is not just a random covenant that I'm making with you here in Deuteronomy, okay, or in Exodus. You are descendants of Abraham, and I am fulfilling that covenant to Abraham. The promises that I made with him, I am building upon what we made, okay? And the same can be said for the Davidic covenant. And it's actually most clearly seen from a passage in Ezekiel. This is uh, Ezekiel 34, 24. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. 
as the covenantal representative, David substitutes for the whole people. Okay? Because the king is in covenant with God, the people are in covenant with God. And therefore the Lord is with them all. So what ultimately unites all these covenants together is that God has called the people to himself. Not because they or we deserve it, right? But because he has set his love on his people and said, I will be their God and they will be my people. Okay, this is the Emmanuel principle that is seen throughout all of these covenants. <clears throat> so at any rate, um, that's the Emmanuel principle and these are the six promises that God makes with Abraham in this chapter. Then he shifts his focus to Abraham's responsibility in verse 9. Because God's grace demands a response, right? And this is what God says in verse 9. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. So, the conditions of the covenant are, keep my covenant, right? It's very short, very simple. God says, believe the covenant, keep my covenant, live like the covenant's true, right? This is not a combination of faith and works, right? It's, it's simply the outworking of faith. Now... What is the covenant that Abram, or Abraham at this point must keep? Look at verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So this at last brings us to the covenant sign. Now this verse should really grab your attention. Because notice how circumcision is being framed here. Up to this point, the, the uh, covenant has always been been understood to be that, right, I will be your God. You could trace that all the way back to Genesis 6.18, right? And look back in our chapter starting in verse 2, that I may make my covenant between me and you. The idea being that the Lord is God to Abraham, right? Then he picks up in verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you to be God to you and your offspring after you, and he concludes in verse 8, I will be their God. So from the Noahic covenant all the way up to this point, this is how the covenant has been defined. But in verse 9, God tells Abraham, keep my covenant. Great, God. What's the covenant? How do I keep it? This is my covenant. Every male among you shall be circumcised. I'm sorry, what? So again, this, this should give us pause, right? And make us realize that something important is happening here. Okay? Now it gets even better. Look at verse 11. Because there we read, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be, it being circumcision, shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Great. So which is it? Is it the covenant? Or is it... The sign of the covenant. Well, yes, exegetically, it's both. But specifically, it's the sign of the covenant. And here's where this gets fun. Okay, The covenant is and has always been, I will be your God and you will be my people. Okay, It's grounded on the promises of God. For this covenant is rooted in those, those six promises that we just studied. Right, That's the covenant circumcision is the sign that God is going to fulfill that covenant. It's an outward sign that represents and confirms God's promises to Abraham that he's been confirmed in the covenant. 
Okay, in other words, it's a sign of the covenant that God has already made with Abraham. God is not making a new covenant. This is a sign of the covenant in order to confirm to Abraham the certainty of that promise. But God wants that sign to be of such great assurance to Abraham that he speaks about it in such a way that there is a close identification between the covenant and the covenant sign. In fact, the identification between the two is so close that those who reject the covenant sign reject the covenant itself. Look at verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, I'm not saying that's important regarding baptism as well, but I'm just going to leave that right there. Now, why circumcision? What's the big deal with that? Well, for one, it's an incredibly personal sign. Okay? This is not a mark that would normally be visible to others. Okay? It is meant to convey the intimate relationship between God and Abraham. Okay? But more importantly, this sign is meant to draw attention to Abraham's offspring. Okay? Abraham needed to understand and believe that through him, a royal descendant would be born. Okay? By which divine blessing would come. So this sign is cut into Abraham and every other male in his house to convey God's message. That you need to believe me when I say, I will make you into a great nation. Kings will come from you. I'm going to give you descendants, and they're not going to come from Hagar. They're going to come from Sarah, your wife, as it's always meant to be. One man, one woman. Okay? Now, I said before, and I'm going to say it again, circumcision is not a work by which Abraham is saved. Okay? It's a reminder that Abraham will see daily that God keeps his promises. Now, there's two important things we need to note about circumcision, and the first is covenant membership. Okay? I think it's helpful to remember that circumcision was not unique to the Hebrews. Okay? It was often used in Egypt from very early periods as an act of ritual purity. Okay? It was a requirement for men who would work in the temples. Um, there are tomb scenes as early as 2500 BC that depict the practice. Okay? Sometimes it was used as a passage into manhood. Okay? So it's not like God said, hey, no one else is doing this. Go ahead and, and circumcise yourselves. Okay? No. Circumcision is declared as a covenant signed by God at this point for not only Abraham's reassurance, but also covenant membership. Okay? We read in verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Okay, so clearly this is not about temple priests or passing into manhood. Okay, at eight days old, these babies are getting snipped. Okay, and the reason is to declare that these children are members in the external covenant community. To have this sign means that you are numbered among the people who are committed to God's promises. Now, some of you might be thinking, but little eight-year-old Elijah doesn't understand that. Okay, yeah, you're right. But the promise is generational. It can't just be fulfilled to Abraham. It's familial. Okay, and let me tell you, as a grown man, it's a good thing little eight-year-old Elijah isn't going to remember that. Okay, because there are believer circumcision in Scripture, and they're not pretty. Okay, they're bloody. They're painful. Poor Abraham does it in verse 23 at 99 years old. That's a, that's a man right there, okay? Now, 
There's another group of people that fit into this category. Look at the end of verse 12. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Okay, then that's repeated in verse 13, and it ends with, they shall surely be circumcised. Is that right? Praise God. So what is God saying here? That visible membership into the covenant is not about race. It's not about social status. Okay, he tells Abraham whether the person is your direct descendant, man, that's coming down, or a Gentile slave that you bought with your money, okay, from a foreign country, circumcise them. If they are in your house and you are their head, circumcise them. They are members of the covenant. They partake of the promises and the blessings of God. Okay, why is this important? Because it's never been about Jewish ethnicity then, and it's not about Jewish ethnicity now. Okay? That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 3, verse 9, when he's talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, And do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. The point is not about being a Jew and belonging to Abraham. It's about worshiping the God of Abraham. That's why God says here, even if you're a foreigner bought with money, come into the covenant. Now, there's one last thing we need to mention about circumcision, mainly what it's not. Circumcision does not equal salvation. I feel like this is evident, but it bears mentioning. Just because a person is circumcised does not mean they're saved, right? Who is the first child circumcised in Scripture? Ishmael, right? He's 13 years old. It happens in verse 23. But what happens to Ishmael? He has 12 sons and a daughter, just like God promised in uh, verse 20 of uh, Genesis 17. Who does his daughter marry? Esau. Yes, that would be the same Esau that God hated. Okay? So does God bless him and keep his word? Yes, he does. But he doesn't establish his covenant with him. That was reserved for Isaac. And eventually we learn in Genesis 25 that Ishmael dies quote, settled over against all his kinsmen. In other words, he warred against over all his brothers. Okay? So all that to say circumcision, the sign of the covenant, covenant does not guarantee or equal salvation. Okay? Number two, circumcision does not indicate national identity. The whole point of circumcision is spiritual. It's designed to confirm God's covenant promises. Okay? All of which must be received by faith. Number three, circumcision does not bring you into the covenant. Circumcision doesn't bring you into the covenant. Circumcision confirms that you're in the covenant. Okay? It confirms you're in the covenant. Now, you may think that that's just theological semantics. It's not. Okay? Paul makes this argument in Romans 4. We looked at that text already. But I want to drive this point home. Abraham was a part of the covenant in Genesis 12. Okay? But he's not circumcised until 25 years later. Okay, And this is a big deal, because Paul makes it a big deal. He asks, was Abraham declared righteous, i.e. justified, before or after he was circumcised? And his answer was, before. Okay? This is the ultimate theological trump card being played here. He's reiterating the point that Jews and Gentiles are on equal playing field when it comes to justification, and it's not circumcision that saved him. It's merely confirmed that he was received by faith. And these principles are incredibly important as we seek to understand the sacraments. Because here's the thing, there are other churches that don't teach this, right? 
Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, they'll say that sacraments bestow saving grace on you. Right? And it gets even more problematic when you consider the number of sacraments they ascribe. But again, the sign doesn't bestow salvation. It confirms God's promises. Okay? Received by faith. Now, this concludes the Abrahamic covenant, but let me make one last uh, disclaimer here. You can't just data dump all this stuff. <laughs> okay? We're going through the covenants like this for a reason. Okay? When we get to the New Testament and start talking about baptism and comparing it to circumcision, you're going to need to know this stuff. Okay? Because for the most part, conservative, Bible-believing Christians, right, they're going to agree on pretty much everything we've set up to this point. The major divide between Pado and Credo Baptists is going to be who receives the sign of the covenant. Okay? And we're going to talk about all that. But this is our foundation. Right? You've got to walk before you can crawl. Okay? Any questions? As far as it relates to baptism? Yeah, or, or, or somehow, you know, ladies left out or women left out or it doesn't apply. Oh, I see what you're saying. I don't know. I never really asked this question before. Um, I've never really been asked this question before. I, I, I mean, Abraham was still Sarah's head, so she was still part of the covenant. Uh, that way, and in the same way that David was still the king over the whole country, so he, I guess you could say through the transitive property, because David was the head and the king over the whole country, uh, because he was the, uh, the head of the covenant for them, they were therefore members of the whole covenant. So uh, just because the sign wasn't given to a woman specifically, because her uh, husband uh, was part of the covenant, she would be a member of the covenant as well. Robert? So going back to the twofold meaning on justification, well, when James said mm-hmm. you said it was a manifestation of faith, correct? Or something like that? Mm-hmm. So is it similar to sanctification in that sense, or after justification? In a sense. And, and when James says, you know, faith without works is dead, that's really the thesis statement of the whole thing. I was just kind of trying to elaborate on the point of, especially when he says in verse 24, because people really get tripped up that it's not, you know, you're justified by works and not by faith alone. People really get tripped up on that verse and they, they rip it out of context, right? Um, but it, it's, it's just his use of justification is different there. And we know that because he gives different examples of how it's used, right? Abraham, he's talking about Abraham's justification in light of his sacrificing Isaac, in light of um, uh, Rahab's use with the spies, saving the spies, right? So, um, so when we talk about his use of justification, it's just, it's the outworking of your faith, 
right? In that you're not, you don't just, you can't just say, I believe, and then you're done, right? Faith produces good works. Right. It's different in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. Any more questions? Oh, yeah, no, and, and again, that's not really a one-to-one correlation. It's just that's how, in the ancient Near East, people would have assigned and seen those covenants, right? God was the vassal, and Israel was the Caesarean. Um, he, God was the ruler, the overlord, and, and it, it's, it's how they would have made sense of those covenants at that time. Um, but what made the covenant such a big deal was that God is the one who walks through the, the animals, um, He's the one who becomes the servant, in a sense. He's the one who calls, it's an oath of self-malediction, right? He's the one who says, if this covenant's broken, I will become like those animals. Um, that just would never have happened. Any more questions? Good questions. All right, let me pray for us and get ready for worship. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this covenant, this covenant of grace and the promises that you've made to Abraham that are true for us and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Um, Lord, we pray that you would be with us in our fellowship that is to follow and our worship of you as you call us into your presence. Uh, May it be pleasing in your sight. We thank you for the rain that we just heard, and we pray that you would bring more upon our land We thank you for the salvation that we have in our Lord Jesus. Please be with us today and uh, the days to follow this week. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.